This is a Pain Information Network. This is number 70. I have Dr. Peter Kosak. I have him back on. and He's a doctor from Eugene, Oregon. Very, very smart guy, but he has a really neat practice. And I'm from the West, so I kind of get there's a little more of the feel of a naturopathic and just natural and general approach to dealing with many disease states. It includes pain. So he has, interestingly, a naturopathic physician in his practice. I have, in the past, worked closely with chiropractors and others and believe that there's other ways out there to do things. And pain is so emotional. It has a clear situational uh, feel to it that many times it isn't a pill it isn't an allopath it's another type of care practitioner in and they can come from many different walks of life and training backgrounds these care practitioners can sometimes help us find another way so that's what we're going to talk about today is maybe another way and we will also uh, have an opportunity to listen to all your questions that you might have And your voice can be heard by going to paininformation.com. Leave a a message uh, for me and a review on iTunes. Now, the reviews on iTunes are really important, and please subscribe, too, because that helps us rank. And we really want to rank so other people can find us. We're getting a lot of downloads, but we uh, need to continue to rank, and that's important. So I'd appreciate it if you do that. It just takes a minute. Go to iTunes. Go to iTunes Store. Click on pain, and then you uh, will see us there, our logo, and then you can review us right uh, through the logo. Other than that, uh, this is a good interview, and I enjoyed talking to him at a recent meeting, and I'm, I'm going to pass it along to you. Very, very interesting talk. I have with me today Peter Kosick from Eugene, Oregon. He comes to us a little rusty today, but he's going to work it out in the podcast. Uh, I guess they get a little rusty up there. Is that right? It gets a little wet in the winter. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a beautiful summer day. We're in Memphis at the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting, and this is a meeting where we are in both an academic sense where we're learning about controlled substances, we're teaching about controlled substances, practice management, uh, uh, radiation and how it affects uh, not only uh, the patient but how we can use it to better image and it's also a certification course and we're uh, learning techniques and improving our skills downstairs on the cadavers in the lab and yes we do use cadavers not just in medical school but throughout our professional career so it's it's really great for me to take strong and really experienced providers of pain care uh, from all walks of life and from different parts of the country and just get their spin on on different uh, perspectives that we encounter every day. But you know, some things are common uh, throughout the United States and we can't get past a few things. Although Eugene, Oregon may have a little bit different take on certain things with pain and how we deal with it on the outside looking in well in north carolina we do things maybe a little differently too but that doesn't mean we don't have a commonality and one of the most important commonalities that we have is dealing with patients that have anxiety so we're going to talk a little bit about that and how it relates to pain how it relates to drugs and what it means to best clinical outcome 
This is one of those podcasts that you want to, you want the family to listen to because pain affects the entire family. So does addiction, and so does depression. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Peter. Uh, I'm uh, Peter Kosek. I practice in a multidisciplinary pain group with a, a naturopath and a psychologist and a, a, a physical medicine uh, uh, family practice physician in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, we provide uh, multidisciplinary pain care there. I love Eugene. And I also looked at Portland early on in my career uh, as I'm from originally from Colorado. I love the West. You're lucky to live there. It's a great place. But let's get back to uh, our focus today. That's going to be anxiety. We all have anxiety. In fact, I don't really understand exactly what we can say about anxiety from a lay perspective. Yeah, the DSM-5 and DSM-4 have their definitions, but why don't you tell the listening audience what we see in the pain patient? Well, pain patients with anxiety are overrepresented in the patients that suffer catastrophic complications from oral opiate therapy, in particular the over overdose deaths that have blossomed in the United States in the last many years. That's so true. That is so true. You rarely see a coroner's report with just opioid. That's a misconception of many people. Oh, we had another opioid death. Well, there's also benzodiazepines in there, and there may be alcohol, barbiturates, I don't know what, but just other stuff. And it comes down to folks self-medicating, and sometimes we call that a chemical coping. Tell me how your perception is, and I know we share a common ground here, where the beginning of the problem can occur. Well, I think the beginning of the problem occurs when a patient shows up in a primary care practice with three specific psychologic features. The first is anxiety. Uh, the second is poor coping skills. We're going to call this lack of resili- resilience. It's sometimes called negative affect. It's the belief that everything is going to get worse. And finally, catastrophization. And catastrophization is the certainty that everything will get worse and that a small stimuli is blown up into a huge proportion. You're right. And that's not allodynia or hyperalgesia or some of these other uh, defin- definitions that we've said in other podcasts. Those are different. Those are clinical scenarios. This is falling a little bit outside of that into more of a psychologically perplexing environment. So, okay, you mentioned where the beginning may start, but expand on that a little. Tell us uh, how, how important it is that the family and the patient or the listener knows that these medica- medications are not benign. I'm not exactly sure how they find out that the medications aren't benign, but it's clear that patients with those features, again, catastrophizing and anxiety and a negative affect, do extremely poorly with controlled substance and opiate therapy. And they, in many cases, aren't appropriate candidates for that therapy. Treating the underlying disease of anxiety and catastrophization and poor coping allows them then to begin to cope with their pain and perhaps come to a point where they might benefit from other therapies. But without addressing that critical issue first, or at least concurrently, they're destined to a path of chemical coping and trying to use medications that are sedatives to manage symptoms that truly aren't being well managed. In general, these patients come to me on a relatively high dose of opiate. In Oregon, depending on the practice the patient's sent from, there's a cutoff of either 90 or 120 morphine equivalent units a day. Patient arrives, they have terrible pain control. Their pain is 8 to 10 out of 10. And they're anxious, and they're not sleeping, 
and they're depressed. And when I explain to the patient that the way to get better is, in fact, to slowly back away from the medications and develop the tools that help manage the anxiety and the depression that are other than benzodiazepines and opiates, the patients often become upset and angry. Yes, they do, because that is their important central focal point, that pill. You'll notice, and I noticed, that people will leave home and accidentally forget their billfold. They'll leave home without their glasses. They'll forget a lot of things, but they won't leave home without their benzodiazepines. It's with them. It's an appendage. And so it's not just a matter of us saying in a pill count, can we see your medicine? It's just what we do is a standard thing. It's a matter of we only see the favored medicines, they forgot the others. Do you see that too? I see that too, and I also see, not just in pain patients, but across America, what my psychologist refers to as the big gulp phenomena. They don't want a little bit of soda to quench their thirst. They want a half a gallon of soda. And they don't want, you know, an 8-ounce coffee. They want a 20-ounce vente latte. And, and the same thing happens with their drugs. They want marijuana to the point of intoxication, alcohol to the point of intoxication, and they want their medications to be similarly powerful and overwhelming. In fact, the patients who get better are patients who can understand the subtlety of behavioral interventions, exercise, cognitive therapies that will actually get them better in the long term, not just change their consciousness in the short term. Yeah, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and I was at a meeting, and I've talked about this on the podcast, and a psychiatrist, a very prominent psychiatrist, stood up in front of hundreds of us <laughs> that have a common desire to get these chemicals out of people, these addictions, these these demons, and he said, there's nowhere in contemporary American medicine that we need to be treating people with benzodiazepines. And the room exploded. Everybody was clapping. Now, that may be a little on one side, but, you know, people that deal with those that are on benzodiazepines see it. They, they just fall to these drugs and they fall prey. But there's another side to it. There's other drugs. We'll call them adjuncts. People tend to just want to sometimes be numb. They also want a muscle relaxer. Or they want something else that uh, they might self-administer, like alcohol, or blow some weed. And that, that's a problem I've got with this stuff. We aren't cutting back on medicines. We're allowing more unmetered medicines available to the public. And that would be like marijuana, for example. I think those medications are prescribed uh, for what seems like good and caring pers- uh, people good and caring physicians for good and caring purposes, not realizing that they're not being used for the purpose that they were intended. I don't think the physicians prescribing them are trying to cause trouble. But many patients can be hurt, have been hurt, and have the potential to not get better while they're on that therapy. And it's really the not getting better that I have the greatest issue with. When I explain to a patient that the way to get better is to change that and to do that, I often see the same expression as I see in a deer that I've almost hit on the road. Their eyes open up and their pupils dilate, and they become either angry or sad and unable to really engage in their fear that they have about losing the medication. After all, each of these patients take their medication with them because they've all been in withdrawal from stopping taking the medication suddenly, and that withdrawal is only worsening their already pre-existing anxiety. And so they want to do everything to avoid that. And it takes holding the person's hand and convincing them that you will help them work their way down off those medications, not make it catastrophic, and in the process of that, they will see themselves get better. 
it is the process of doing that that allows them to perhaps make the turn to get better. You wouldn't stop these abruptly, would you? It's certainly not safe to stop benzodiazepines abruptly. The complications can be life-threatening. Stopping opiates abruptly is appropriate if the patient is doing something dangerous with them, for example, trafficking them or markedly overtaking them. Then simply access to them has to be denied because they're risking the lives of the community or they're risking their own lives. And patients who are simply have an issue with continuing to use them and being unable to wean from them, they can be weaned slowly. In the last few years, we've had access to a drug called buprenorphine that can make the transition from strong opiate therapy uh, to a stable condition, and then finally weaning from using opiate agonists uh, a much easier and safer and uh, more uh, controllable. You bet, and you, you brought up buprenorphine. I think buprenorphine is a landmark drug. I hope the World Health Organization considers it an essential drug. I think I think they might. So we're going to do an entire podcast on that incredibly valuable drug. Uh, I think it's a it's worthy of that. You know, you said that pretty eloquently. That uh, I know people have developed a I guess a kinship with these drugs. Have you figured out any strategies to get them off? You know, I understand cognitive behavioral therapy may work, but there's so much resistance because people say, I just need my medication. Well, they tell me they just want their medication or I'm not a good doctor. And what I try to convince them is if they will engage with me in doing a care that I think will help them, whether it's exercise or cognitive therapy or Tai Chi, then I will engage in a slow and metered wean of the medications. And if they're not willing to engage in that, then I need to exit the care of the patient because I don't think simply continuing those those medications in an environment where they're not engaged in self-care, uh, even in the course of a slow wean, is safe. Right. So they haven't taken command like the desired modifiable features in health profile. Every pound counts. Let's work on losing tobacco products, et cetera. But, you know, patients that have this habituation or situational depression anxiety, they have more, I, I guess, emotion than logic. And I think you understand that concept. So what's our strategy? I think the strategy is to understand those three fundamental problems or inter, inter, interplay. The one is lack of resilience. We are watching someone be non-resilient because they can't cope with changes in their life whether it's from pain or other stressors. And the next one is anxiety, which can become panic, which is an over, overwhelming sense that I have great empathy for. And, and, and finally, they catastrophize. When they go to bed at night, they think about negative thoughts and ruminate on them again and again and again. Try to offer help in each one of those axes. For the ruminating thoughts, perhaps it's a, a tricyclic antidepressant or a, a, an antipsychotic to help them calm down and actually be able to, uh, to rest. Uh, for the and cognitive behavioral therapy is the right approach for the lack of coping skills. And for the anxiety, the, the, the serotonin, serotonin uptake inhibitors have been shown to be clearly effective in anxiety. Even though patients will say they prefer benzodiazepines, they have the potential to get better by taking a different approach. Finally, this, the mood stabilizers such as Lamictal can often be critical in helping a patient make this transition. You're right, and you nailed it. The American Psychiatric Association, I, I think this is right, uh, they, they put SSRIs right in the game with anxiety. They don't put benzos in there. And I think you'd find others like the Canadian Psychiatric Association and NICE, which is European. Um, I think you'd find them right in the middle with that in agreement right there. 
Now, okay, you, you've helped a family or two understand that there may be a member that has a problem. And the family doctor is over here. And what would you suggest the family do to help the, the family doctor or those prescribing understand that they're concerned? Attending the physician visit with a patient is by far the most powerful intervention they can have. And I realize it can be challenging. Some of these patients don't want their family to hear what goes on in a confidential room. But having the engagement of the family completely changes the dynamic. Just the other day, a patient, I asked about alcohol use, and he denied it. And his wife looked at him and said, what do you mean you were dead drunk for four years and you just stopped three years ago? And... You know, simply the perspective changes. I think the man wasn't trying to be dishonest to me. He just didn't think that was a problem anymore. Instead of realizing that maybe it's part of his his biology and it's something we need to be aware of and help address. Exactly right. So as a, I guess, a parting comment or two, what would you suggest that uh, just in general for self-awareness either a patient might do or if they need help, where do you think they would turn? Well, I think there are different levels of help you might need. If you're doing dangerous thing, buying drugs in the street, or trading drugs, uh, or significantly overtaking the drugs that are prescribed to you, you simply need to treat that as addiction. And the reason you have to do that is that addiction will kill you. And if you don't treat it, you, you risk death, particularly addiction to opiates and benzodiazepines. But there's a second level that I think is a far more common level of people who simply go into a level, a, a life of chronically coping using medications, and they're blunting their emotional presence. They're blunting their ability to be with their family. They're blunting their ability to be with their life, enjoy their, enjoy their life, and engage with their life. I often ask them, when was the last time you had fun? And they look at me with a funny, funny look, an open, open face they can't recall. And they say, oh, I had a good time when I watched TV two nights ago. And I said, no, no, fun, belly laugh, fun, laughter, engagement, enjoyment, hedonic activities. And they simply can't remember. That is a result of the drugs in many, many cases. The pain does that too, and I don't want to ignore the pain. But you have to address the fact that the drugs have significant morbidity, and you have to get away from them to get, avoid that morbidity. You're right. You, you nailed it. Folks, if you find yourself lacking socialization, lacking hobby, enjoyment of things that you used to enjoy, and just kind of becoming an introvert, you got a problem. And that's something that rarely, and I'm talking a very special individual and probably not you, can do alone and deal with alone. So get help. And those help resources are abundant. Start with your family practice doctor. Talk to them. If not, uh, community mental health. If not, uh, seek maybe the help of a a psychiatrist or psychologist. You're lucky enough to have a psychologist in your practice. And, you know, I I have a counselor and the like. And they do a tremendous job because, look, physicians are intimidating. And it's a good idea to have that third party work it. And so, I, you know, I often turn it over to them. Do you do the same? Well, I, I think that when the drugs are a significant issue, I tend to use people who counsel for drugs. And when it's a pain issue, a cognitive issue, and where the, the goal is neuroplastic transformation, 
which is trying to teach your brain to actually get better and be able to move beyond the pain. That's what my psychologist is a master in. Uh, he's coached the Olympics for 12 cycles. He's just a master, uh, interesting man, and he helps people make that transformation. But I don't think that his specialty is addiction medicine. I think that it's important to remember that I am not judging, and I know Hans isn't judging, patients who have this condition. It is not something you should feel judged by, but it is something to engage in and get better. And I think Hans and I both have tremendous empathy for the patient in that situation and want to help and and want to provide what medicine can to help make that transformation. Absolutely. No judgment. And this is what we do. This is what we do for a living. We are not sizing you up, rolling our eyes, and we may be the light at the tunnel that isn't a truck. Behind those closed doors, we may be your singular best, not only confidential resource, but the, the one place you can go that's safe. And we understand and are trained to get our best foot forward to, to help you and to at least point the direction and work with you. Well, you know, I really want to thank you for being on the podcast once again. And I'll be tapping your brain a few times, but this is a great subject, and thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. That was a a great little talk, and I enjoyed you being on the show. So uh, we hope to have you again, and if you have any uh, questions or comments, uh, try to get them to him through paininformation.com. So please just uh, leave a little message for me. I read them all. Other than that, the other podcast that's a little whimsical a little i guess eccentric that uh i do it's kind of fun i have a few of the podcasts up here you might have realized they don't really fit but they're just kind of test introduction just kind of see what you think it's called watme w-a-t-m-e the world according to me so check that out and i will be uh uploading quite a few more podcasts over the next uh, week or two And I have some very interesting people I've interviewed. I also want to talk about some very timely topics that have to be expressed because uh, there's a lot of question marks. And this time of year, we have uh, more questions about addiction than other times of the year, oddly enough. So I'll probably talk a little bit about that. And for those that uh, don't know, I also have addiction credentials. So I will talk about addiction, and maybe get uh, Sandy Silverman back on. The uh, best thing you can do is enjoy this summer. Get out. Please just, just have a good time, but make it a safe one. We'll see you soon.